We'll have plenty of opportunity this morning as well for you to ask questions, to provide comments, and perhaps share a scripture or two that also comes to your mind. But I do want to direct our attention to one part of scripture this morning, and that's to the book of James. James chapter 1, Brother Mike read for us verses 1 through 18, and I have no intention of covering all 18 verses here this morning. It is my intention to cover verses 1 through 4 this morning, and then it is also my intention to come back this afternoon and cover verses 5 through 8, and perhaps uh, I believe I'm scheduled to come back again on December the 29th, and we'll continue on with the next few verses after that. Uh, and perhaps uh, perhaps by the, by the time uh, we finish, we might get through all 18 verses of the first chapter of the book of James. Now, I think it's important that we understand context. I think it's very important that we understand context, and that's why Mike read for us verses 1 through 18, when we're only going to study verses 1 through 4 this morning. And if you would allow me, I'd like to read the entire context again. So let's look at our Bibles this morning, and let's read James chapter 1, verses 1 through 18 one more time. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, not wavering, nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like the wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. Let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it finisheth, finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lies, with whom there with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. That's uh, James chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Now, before I look in detail at verses 1 through 4, I want to talk about a bit about the book of James in general first. First of all, we need to understand who wrote the book of James. And, of course, the easy answer is the book of James was written by James. But which James? We know there are several James that are mentioned in the New Testament. Which James is it that wrote the book of James? We have James the Apostle. But that is not the James that wrote the book of James. How do we know that? Because James the Apostle is one of the first martyrs of the early church. Before anything was ever put in writing, James the Apostle is martyred. And so it's not James the Apostle, there, but there is another James that is mentioned in the Bible. And, who, and which James is that? It's James, the brother of Christ. 
And not only is James the brother of Christ, but we do know one other thing about this particular James from looking in the book of Acts. What do we know about James the brother of Christ when we look in the book of Acts? We know that he is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. That's right. He is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. If we look back in the Gospels, the record that we see of Jesus' brothers is one of unbelief and one of ridicule and one of derision of their brother, Jesus Christ. However, when we turn to the book of Acts, what we find is James, the brother of Jesus Christ, has become the pillar of the church in Jerusalem. He's become what we would call the pastor or an elder of of the church there in Jerusalem. And it's interesting that we also have a record of another one of Jesus' brothers that goes on to some amount of notoriety within the Bible. And that is the book, the book of Jude is written by another one of Jesus' brothers. So, uh, first of all, I want to propose to you, just to go off on one path, that there was something that changed between the writing of the Gospels and the formation of the church that caused Jesus' brothers to change their mind about him. And I propose that that change was wrought because of the resurrection, the undeniable, undisputable resurrection of Jesus Christ is what caused the change in Jesus' brothers, is my, is my proposition to you. And I propose that that, ex- that exact same resurrection is what causes a change in us today. If it wasn't for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we would all still be lost in our sins with no way to serve Jesus Christ. But it's because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we see the difference in James. We see the difference in Jude. We see the difference in you and me. Now, uh, the book of James was most likely written somewhere around 45 or 50 A.D., one of the earliest books in the New Testament to be written. So we understand a bit about who wrote the book of James. But now, look at verse 1, and somebody tell me, who was the book of James written to? To the twelve tribes. And there's another phrase that goes along with it, to the 12 tribes who are who are scattered abroad. Uh, some of your versions, if you're reading a, a more version, modern version of the Bible, may use, may, may use the word dis, dispersion or the diaspora there. Now, why would James be writing to the 12 tribes of Israel? Anybody have a clue? Why is he writing to the 12 tribes? I thought this was a Christian letter going to a Christian church. Why do the 12 tribes? Uh, that that is one that is one thing to look at is at this point in church history the church is still primarily a Jewish church and James himself is a Jew he is he is the pastor of the church in Jerusalem which is primarily Jews primarily Jews so by far and large his audience that he's writing to are Jews they're Christian Jews because he will address them as brothers over and over again in fact if you ever want to outline the book of James. Just about every time you see the word brothers, you get into a new section of the book of James. But is that the only reason? Why is there another reason why he may be addressing his letter to the 12 tribes? Right, the promises are made to the 12 tribes. Uh, it's talking specifically about the physical nation of Israel. That, that That's right. Anything else? What? The, yeah, and that's the reason for the scattering. Do you remember that... Uh, we have the record in the book of Acts of a persecution that broke out against the church, do we not? In fact, we we read through Acts chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, and we see a very specific persecution of the book of the church. 
We see James, uh, no, we see James martyred. We see Peter and John repeatedly thrown in prison. But in general, when you look through Acts chapters 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, you get the idea that the church was more or less accepted and even admired within Jerusalem and within Israel. It, there's verses that say that, you know, they were held in, they were held in awe and no one would go near them. Uh, but there's not a lot of history of persecution. But all that changes in Acts chapter 9. Because what happens in Acts chapter 9? Actually, let's, we, we can back up at, at Acts chapter 7, really. What happens in Acts chapter 7, and it continues on in Acts chapter 9? Stephen's martyrdom, and then there's another very important person that we have in there, yeah, which is Saul of Tarsus. He begins a persecution of the church that ends up in the church being scattered across the known world, particularly the Jewish church that we're looking at in, in the book of James. So I think now we, we, can have, we have a better understanding of why, why James is writing to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. And I want you to remember as we have this conversation that because he is writing to the 12 tribes doesn't mean this is not a Christian letter. He is writing to 12 tribes physically, but spiritually he's writing to the church. Now that's, a, that's an introduction. That gives us verse 1 and a good introduction to the book of James. But I would like for us to concentrate our work this morning in verses 2 through 4. Uh, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Now we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning considering these three verses. Now an important fact to remember as we look at these verses and as we continue to look at verses 1 through 18 in the uh, times that we'll have together in the future is that the book of James uses one word in the King James Version and that is the word temptations to describe two different things. Some of you may be looking at a Bible that is not a King James Bible or a New King James and when I read the word temptations over and over again you see a different word. What word do you see over and over again? trials. You see the word trials over and over again. Now, let me ask you a question. In English, when we talk about trials and we talk about temptations, are we talking about two different things? What do you think, John? What? Right. Right. Well, it's interesting that often it, when we talk about these things in English, we think about a temptation as something that wants us to do evil. But we think about a trial it's just something that happens in our life. You know, I trial, you know, my car wouldn't start, so forth and so on. However, in the Greek thinking uh, in what, that we have written in the book of James, the words are interchangeable. Uh, there's, in English, there's a difference between a trial and a temptation. We, we, we put those two things in separate camps. However, in the Greek, in the Greek word here, it's the Greek word parazo, and it can mean both a trial and a temptation. The, literal, the uh, meaning of the word means to test, to scrutinize, to entice, or to discipline. Now, let me just give you a few instances here. Look at James uh, 1, 2, chapter 1, verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Now, you tell me, is that talking about trials or temptations? All right, we'll do a vote. Everybody for trials, raise your hand. All right, everybody for temptations, raise your hand. Okay, guess what? 
I don't think you can know. I think it can be either trials or temptations there. Look at verse 12 now. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. We can do the same thing again. Everybody for trial. Everybody for temptation. Once again, I believe that the context would allow either word in our thought process to be substituted there. But now look at verses 13 to 14. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither he tempteth any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away by his own lust and enticed. Now, everybody for trial, raise your hand. Everybody for temptation, raise your hand. But I propose to you, it's the same exact Greek word. It's either in its verb form there or in its noun form. But it's the same idea. Now, what do, we, what do we learn there? We have to learn that we must allow the context to be our guide. And if the context is not clear, then it probably applies to both. It probably applies to both. Uh, we will see during the course of the, of the teaching this morning that there is a relationship between these two words. However, I believe that the context must be consulted in order to know the meaning that James is trying to convey. In verses 1 through 12, I think the context indicates both. You may be enduring a trial, or you may be enduring what we would call a temptation. The context of James chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, is the same. You endure trials and you endure temptations the exact same way. However, when you get down to verses 13 uh, through 18, I think the only proper way to consider verses 13 through 18 is by the word that we would call temptation, a temptation to do evil. Now, how do we know that? How do we know that the verses 13 through 18 can only deal with temptations? Anybody have, anybody have a, anybody can, anybody tell me where we would, we would turn into the Bible to know that verses 13 through 18 cannot deal with what we would call trials, but only temptations? Lead us not into temptation. That's very good. Coming out of the uh, coming out of Matthew chapter six, I do I do believe with the the model prayer, uh, we pray for God not to lead us into temptations. Or how about the, what what Job? Job is another another excellent uh, example. What you know, Job allowed Satan. God allowed Satan to try Job. Now, right? Yeah, right. But does God try us? Does God send us trials. Well, what, look at this. Hebrews eleven seventeen. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Who was it that did that? Who told Abraham to offer up his only son? What? God did it. I propose to you that a trial that came into Abraham's life as a direct result of the action of God. So we definitely see that context rules. James tells us that God never tempts anybody with sin. He cannot be tempted with sin. But we have indications throughout the Bible that God is the author of trials that come into our life. Now, uh, a story, a short story. Andrew knows I like stories. So this is a short story. Uh, a short story of a man, a young man, in college classroom. And he has, he has a final exam, and the professor grades the test and hands it back. Hey, oh, yeah. Oh no, 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 no. I don't think that's difficult at all, really. I think I think what we see there is Jesus was tempted to do evil, 
And where did what was the source of that temptation? Where did that temptation come from? What well, it came from Satan. God did not tempt him. God orchestrated it. It was God's sovereign plan that Jesus be tempted, but God did not do the tempting. And it's the exact I think it's the exact same way with we see in the story of Job. God did not tempt Job to sin, but God allowed Satan to do that. Uh and so God himself is not the author of evil, but he permits Satan to do his evil works. Right. Right, but he wasn't tempted by the Holy Spirit. He was, in fact, led, it can be very aptly translated, driven, driven into the wilderness to be tempted by by the devil. All right, where was I? Oh, my story. A young man in the college classroom, uh, final exam, and he takes this test and hands it into the professor. Professor hands the test back, and it's got a zero on top of it. Well, the young man's looking at this and said, surely I got something right. So he went back to the professor and said, Professor, I don't think I deserved a zero on this exam. And the professor said, uh, you're right. You didn't deserve a zero, but that was the lowest grade I could give you. Now, why do I tell that story? I tell you that story because I am a simply a man. And I fail the test of trials and temptations all the time. In fact, if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit, I would have no right at all to be standing up here and talking to you about trials and temptations and how to face them because I fail miserably. If there was a score lower than a zero on facing trials and temptations, that would be me. I would get that lower than zero score. Now, James is going to provide us answers, though. I can't provide you answers. I have no clue, but I know where we can find a clue, and we can find a clue looking in God's Word in verses 2 through 4 of James chapter 1. Now, how can I make a passing grade? Well, first of all, and I think I'm finally getting down into the outline here, the first point that I want you to see is I want you to notice the fact that temptations and trials will come our way. Now, how do I know that it's a fact? Look at verse 1 and tell me how I know for a fact that temptations and trials will come your way. There's one word I want you to see in there. What? In verse 2. When? If it was optional, what word will we see? If. But we don't see the if. We see the when. My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations. It's a statement of fact. It's a statement of fact that temptations and trials will come your way. In fact, consider the context. Look at verse 1. Who was the book of James written to? It was written to the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel who had been scattered abroad. They had seen the reality themselves of trials coming into their life. The context fits the idea that temptations will come. Now, the book of James was written to those Christians, those 12 tribes that were scattered abroad, but there's an application to everybody in here today. Uh, it may not be written directly to you and I, but we can certainly gain insight and understanding and edification from what we read here in the book of James. Uh, now, let me ask you a question. It is logical to expect for us to have difficulty in life. After all, how many people have been in the world? You know, there have been billions and billions and billions of people in the world throughout history, right? How many of them have been free of trials and temptations? No one, absolutely no one. So it is logical to assume that every person is going to face trials and temptations. But let me ask you a question. Should we as Christians not expect all of those difficulties, trials and temptations to be taken out of our life once we become a Christian? 
No, I, I, okay, I got, why not? Why should we not expect all of these difficulties to be taken out of our life? Oh, that's, that's something great. Jesus said in himself, you will have persecution. You will have trials and, and tribulations. Uh, in the Olivet Discourse, what do, you, what, what do you say? You'll hear wars and rumors of wars, but the end is not yet. There's, Jesus guarantees that there will be trials and temptations. Right, absolutely. Yeah, very good. Are there other reasons? What are you saying? Yeah, very, and I'm not going to get into debate on this, but very reminiscent of what Paul would write about in Romans chapter 7. You know, he said, I still have this body of death. That would be a great topic for an after-lunch discussion there. Well, I propose to you, we see another reason already in James chapter chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. One reason why God doesn't take away trials and temptations is because they develop patience. They develop patience. Now, somebody help me out. Fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, love, suffering, which is the same word as patience. So so how can you expect God to develop and continue to mature these fruits of the Spirit within you if you don't face situations that cause those things to grow and develop? Very good. Uh, now, look at verse 2. You see the word all there? Count it all joy. In the Greek text, that all is thrown into the position of... Clint, yeah. It's, yeah. it's thrown into the position of prominence. It is the first word there. Uh, the NLT... I just want to read you a verse out of the NLT here, uh, New Living Translation. I want you to see what a poor job some translators do with with handling a text like this. This is the NLT version of verse 2. Dear brothers and sisters, when trouble come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Did anybody see a word that was missing? All. What word got substituted in? Great. Now, tell me, is there a difference between all and great? What's the difference between all and great? That's that, that is the exact point we want to make. All means nothing can be mixed in. All joy, if you have a basket and it's all apples, how many oranges are in there? Zero. If you have a basket that's as big as one of these pews and it's all apples except for one orange, would you say you had a great number of apples, but you still have an orange? There's something mixed in. The word all prohibits anything from being mixed in. It is all joy, nothing mixed in. So that's point number one. The fact that trials and temptations come our way. The next thing that I want you to notice is the forms of temptations. Now, I'm still in verse 2 here. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Now, some of you have other versions of the Bible, and you have other words there besides diverse temptations. What do you, what do you see? Various trials. Okay, Any, anybody else have anything? Andrew's back there flipping through a bunch of things. <laughs> oh, you <laughs> Yeah, well, tell, well that, that's where we're going. What's the root word, right? And what's the meaning of that? There we go. Anybody know, are there any horticulture, any plant people in here? What's variegated? What, what does variegated mean? It's a mixture. It's a mixture of colors, and I think it's also, and somebody who knows plants is going to shoot me here. But it's also the idea. It's also the idea of whether it has a smooth edge on it or a or a 
sawtooth type edge, multicolored. Uh, one of the ver- one of the one of the translations there was multicolored. Now, what tempts you may not tempt me. It is very obvious looking at me how I'm tempted. I am tempted greatly by food, by overeating, by gluttony. Some of you are pencil thin. Either you metabolize it very well or you're not tempted in the same way I am. The point that James is trying to make using the word diverse there is that you will find your applicable situation somewhere as you analyze yourself. What tempts you may not tempt me. Uh, a bit later on, uh, there's a there's a, a section in here in the book of James that we read this morning talking about baiting, uh, talking about lust. And one of the examples I like using of that is catfish bait. Anybody ever go to Academy Sports and look at the stuff that you fish for catfish with? I mean, it, it, it's nasty stuff. I mean, it's it blood and guts, and you know, and it's just absolutely nasty stuff. And you look at that and say, why would anything in the world want to eat this? Well, I propose to you that sin, that the temptation for sin works in our life just the exact same way. Someone could look at what tempts me and say, what's your problem with that? Why do you have a problem with that? I don't have a problem with that, but I'm not a catfish. Some people see the absolute worst filth, and they're tempted by that. But everybody is tempted in some way. That's the point James is making with the word diverse. Uh, Now, just to go back to something that we've already talked about here, but to fill in a couple of blanks, there are two broad categories I believe James is talking about that trials and temptations may fall into. The first is a trial. A trial is often something that is used to test us, such as fire being used to test a metal. These trials and tests are often designed to prove the validity of our faith. These trials and tests are meant to cause you to stand, to become more mature in your faith. Now, if that's the first thing, if that's the first broad category of trial, what's the other broad category that this falls into? We've said it repeatedly already this morning. There are trials and there are temptations. Here is the big difference. A trial that comes into your life is meant to cause you to stand, to become more mature. But what's the purpose of a temptation? A temptation comes into your life, and its primary purpose is to make you fall, to make you stumble. Very good. You can fail a trial, the test of a trial, and it will be sin. You can refuse temptation, and it will not be sin. If you succumb to temptation, it is, of course, sin. Now do you see beginning to see why the Greek can use these words very interchangeably. Why? Because we as Christians are called to stand, both, in, both when faced by trials and faced by temptations. And we as Christians are sinning whether we fail the test of a trial or we fail the test of a temptation. Uh, another point is God can use both in our lives. We've already established the fact that God doesn't send temptations. God is not the author of evil. God is not the author of temptations. But he can use it. How do we know that God can use temptations to come into our life? Yeah, and, and we're going to get to uh, 1 Corinthians ten thirteen in detail here in just a minute. So, so yeah, uh, so temptations, God provides a way of escape. That's one way that he can use them. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And, when you, and when you have... Excuse me, it just escaped me. Like, you know, when, it, when, it, when, when, you, when you have returned, strengthen your brothers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you're converted, strengthen your brothers, okay? So God can use both in our lives. Another point, 
our biblical and righteous reaction helps us to grow, whether it is a trial or a temptation. Our poor reaction causes us to sin, whether or not it is a trial or temptation. Well, that's point two. Point number one was the fact that temptations come. Point number two was the form that temptations come in. Point number three, the force that temptations use. Now, I'll just ask you a question before we look at verse two one more time. Has anybody in this room ever been subjected to a temptation? All right, like one person here. One, uh, <laughs> yeah. I propose to you, every one of you has been tempted. Now, was it weak? Was it dainty? Was it something that was easily brushed aside? No. Temptations are very rarely weak and dainty and easily brushed aside. <laughs> I guess that, that I guess that's a fact. If it was easy to, to get rid, if it was easy to brush aside, it would not, in fact, be a temptation. Now look at verse two again. My brethren, count it all joy when you what's the next word? Fall into diverse temptations. That Greek word that's translated "fall into" is the exact same Greek word that's used when Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan to describe how the traveler fell among thieves. Now. We picture falling down as if I was walking, you know, my clumsy self, if I walk around the front here and I fall down. That's what we picture, right? When we, But what does this mean? What did it mean to fall among thieves? Yeah. Right. Very good word. Active. It is an active thing that's going on here. It is not some passive thing happening with me tripping up. I propose to you that temptations and trials have that same amount of force that comes into our lives. And here's the picture. Just like the traveler in Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, everything may be fine now. You know, life may be good right now. You may not be facing a lot of trials. You may not be facing a lot of temptations. But what did the traveler in the parable of the Good Samaritan not know? He did not know what was around the next bend in the road. He did not know what was around the next bend in the road. Winston Churchill once said this in the midst of World War II. We must always be ready to meet at our average moment what our enemy can hurl against us at his chosen moment. I'll read it again because it's significant when you put it in a spiritual context. We must always be ready to meet at our average moment what our enemy can hurl against us at his chosen moment. So you have an adversary, and what does he do? He prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking who desires. Now, what's that a picture of? That's a picture of an enemy looking for his chosen moment to attack. Opportune time. Very very good language there. An opportune time. Do you know when that's going to be? You don't know when that's going to be. It could be right now. It could be later today. It could be one day next week. You have to be ready to face it at Satan's chosen moment with your average moment. Trials and temptations are not removed when we become saved. We still face temptations and troubles. The difference is that Christians have something to do with their temptations and trials that an unsaved person does not have. What is that? What do we have that the unsaved person doesn't have to deal with trials and temptations? The patience of Christ, very good. And it's not limited to one thing either. We have grace, yes. We have the Holy Spirit. There's one I was looking for. We have the Holy Spirit. The unsaved person, when they're faced with a trial or temptation, what strength can they rely upon? 
their own strength. You and I as Christians, I'm talking specifically to the Christians in here. If you're not a Christian, you need to listen to this very closely. What strength do we have when we are faced with trials and temptations? We have the strength of Jesus Christ. We have the strength of God. We have the strength of the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't guess I have to ask for a show of hands. When you're faced with a trial or temptation, who wants to lean upon your own strength? I call you liars. Because what is the tendency of man? Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Why would Solomon have to write that if we didn't do it? So, point number four. Let's do the three points. We have the fact of temptations. We have the form of temptations. We have the force of temptations. And then next, the facing of temptations. Now we get to finally move on to verse 3 here. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. First of all, I want you to see that phrase, the trying of your faith. The purpose of trials and temptations which come into our lives is in order to do what? It's in order to try us or to test us to see what our faith is made of. In this verse, we also see the goal. Now, if the purpose of trials and temptations is to try us or test us, what is the goal? Look at verse 3, and you tell me what the goal is. Perseverance. Perseverance. Uh, some versions use the word, what else you see? Patience. Some other versions might use the word steadfastness. Some versions might use the word endurance here. Now, how does that happen? How do facing trials and temptations help build endurance, steadfastness, patience? Right. All right. So when we, when we are tried or tested or tempted... We exercise our faith. And now I'll make a point from that. Should we expect to go through one trial or temptation? No. If, we're to, if this is exercise, you know, that's, that's one thing I've been trying to do for the last 13 months now. I've been trying to exercise. When? Once a month? No. Once a week? No. What have I, what have, back of the room, what have I been doing? Every, hello? <laughs> Every day. You see, if the purpose is to exercise, to develop maturity, we should expect trials and temptations to come on a regular basis. Otherwise, our Father in Heaven, in fact, uh, I'll just, let me just digress for a minute. Why do I take the context of this all the way down through verse 18? Well, look at the very end. Every good and perfect gift comes down from God the Father, or the Father of lights. I propose to you that trials and temptations are those good and perfect gifts. That's why James, and back in verse 2, can write, count it all joy. All joy. Now, another side point. There's a very important fact that we need to remember, that it is not a sin to be tempted. How do we know that it's not a sin to be tempted? Yeah, it, how about, uh, uh, that would be Hebrews 4.15. That happens to be what I have written here. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with our feelings of infirmities, but was in every way, all points tempted. What's the next phrase? No, no, there's one more phrase in there. Just as we are, yet was without sin. Now, I want you to, I want you to see that that phrase, just as we are, is very important. The temptations that Jesus Christ faced were not on a, another plane, another type. They were the exact same temptations that you and I face every day. It is not a sin to be tempted. Because you and I are tempted just like Jesus Christ was. Does that mean Satan is going to come to us and tell us to throw ourselves off the corner of a temple? 
No, this is not talking about specifics. This is talking about, in general, by scope, everything that Jesus Christ faced, you and I face. Or everything that you and I face is what Jesus Christ faced. Nothing different. There was no special temptations for Jesus Christ. There's no special temptations for you. Uh, in fact, we'll get to a verse in here in just a second that t- talks about that. Uh, now, but what, what I just read has an even greater ramification. Jesus was tempted just like you and I. He was 100% human, and yes, he was 100% God also, but he can also sympathize with what we are facing. Remember what I said about the de- difference between an unbeliever and a believer? We have, as believers, somewhere to turn when we face trials and temptations. And who do we turn to? We can turn to Jesus Christ, who has already faced it. I taught some leadership classes recently, uh, and one of the situations is dealing with difficult people. One of the things that we say over and over again in teaching that particular class is, you are fa- if you're facing somebody who's, that is difficult, guess what? You're not the first person. Somebody else has faced a difficult person exactly like you're having to face. Or somebody else is a difficult person exactly like you are. Someone has figured out how to handle it. You should turn to them for wisdom. Well, I propose to you that there's a spiritual application of that as well. Jesus Christ has already figured out how to handle temptations. And he's not going to keep it a secret. In fact, I think we're getting very close to getting there. Uh, um, No, not quite there yet. Uh, One other point. Trials do not necessarily come as a result of sin. Trials do not necessarily come as a result of sin. How do we know that? Jesus. What? Was he tried? You tell me. Was Jesus Christ tried? Did he have trials? Satan tempted him. People opposed him. He was tried before Pilate. Keep going. His brothers didn't appreciate him. He endured hostility from sinners. Y'all keep going. You're doing great. You're doing great. Don't stop now. Keep going. Yeah, okay. Now, you tell me, is being nailed to a cross a trial? Would anybody here consider being nailed to a cross a trial? Did Jesus, was Jesus nailed to a cross because of sins he committed? No, he was nailed to a cross because of sins you and I committed, but not what he committed. Trials do not come as a result of sin necessarily. Now, sometimes we do stupid things, and trials come into our life because we do stupid things. Uh, in the Sands of Iwo Jima, I think it was John Wayne that said, life is tough but it's tougher if you're stupid, okay? So trials and, tem- trials and temptations can come into our life because, because we're stupid. But often trials and temptations come into our life not because of anything we've ever done wrong. They just happen to come, and Jesus Christ is proof of that. Now, if you believe that every trial that comes into your life is a result of a sin in your life, you can become quickly discouraged. But I also propose to you that you will spend a lot of time analyzing your past, that will be a waste of effort. You will look at a trial that comes to your life and say, well, what did I do wrong? Was it because of something I did last week? Or maybe maybe this one came because of what I said yesterday? You will spend a lot of time analyzing the past, trying to figure out, what did I do so this tri- made this trial come into my way? I propose to you that trials come whether or not it's a result of sin. And it is much more important to face the present than it is to analyze the past. Yes, we are to examine ourselves, but we need to realize that not every trial comes because of sin. Now, something I've promised a bunch of times here, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. I'd like everybody to turn there with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. 
Glenn has already alluded to this verse once, uh, but I want to look at it in detail with you. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will, with the temptation, also make a way of escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Now, you remember the story I told early on about the student. Got a zero on the test, right? Well, I want to go back to that student here. Student fails the exam, and he goes back and tells the professor, I didn't deserve a zero. But now, let's go a little bit deeper with the student. The first thing the student says is what? 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 Well, he said, he said I, but well, what, well, watch this. The first thing the student says is, uh, nobody ever was given a test this hard before. How did you expect me to pass this? Nobody has ever had this test before. But what did Paul just write? No, but such as is common to man. You say, my temptation was unique. Nobody ever was tempted like that before. What does Apostle Paul say? But such as is common to man. Your test, your trial, your temptation is no different from anybody else's. All right, but let's go along with the student. Uh, the student says, but that test, uh, it, it was just too difficult for me. Uh, yeah, yeah, maybe you've given this test sometime in the past, but you just don't realize that I, I, I just I can't learn the way other people do. What do we say? We say, this temptation was too strong. Sure, I realize that other people have uh, not eaten 100 pieces of pizza at the buffet, but you don't know me. You know, that temptation was just too strong. What does God say? God says there in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, But I am faithful and will not suffer you to be tempted beyond that you are able. Nothing comes to you that God doesn't allow, and God allows nothing more than you can bear. There's a corollary that goes along with that. When you are under severe trials, severe temptations, take it as a compliment. God knows that you can bear up under it. If you're like me, you have an easy life, not a whole lot comes your way, God's really saying, I can't trust you. Third, the student says that test was impossible. There's no way that anybody could have done that test in an hour. What does God say? God says, I, but I, will make a way of escape so you can bear it. There is always a way out of temptation, and there is always a way to face a trial without sinning. There is a way of escape. Now, I realize I'm running long, so we're going to go ahead and finish this up and then uh, have a chance for anybody else to say anything or pray or, or perhaps request a song. Point number five, the fruits of temptation. We have the facts, we have the form, we have the force, we have the facing, and then finally we have the fruits of temptation. God is trying to do something every time we face a trial or temptation. Look at verses, uh, I'm back in James chapter 1 again, verses 2 through 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be per perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Every trial that comes into our life has two purposes. Your good, God's glory. Now, maybe you're like me. Every time a trial comes to your life, what's my first reaction? Why, Lord? Why me? Why now? God answers that question. God answers the question of why me? Why now? Why God? In verses 2 through 4. The first is found in verse 2. It's for your enjoyment. 
what does he say? My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into first temptations. Don't see it as something that must be endured. See it as something to be rejoiced in. The second is found in verse 3. Why me? Why now? The answer is patience. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience. Once again, I remind you that that has the meaning of steadfastness, endurance. The Greek word is hupomono. It means to bear up under. Now, the third reason. Well, no, I want to go sit on that one for a minute. Do you ever find yourself saying, I just don't blank like I ought to. I don't pray like I ought to. I don't study the Bible like I ought to. I don't attend church like I ought to. Well, that's a very dangerous thing to say. You know why? Because that's inviting God to send you back to school in that area. And what's God's schoolroom? Trials and temptations. Now, anybody know how a grandfather clock works? I'm not talking about one that you plug in the wall or with batteries. Anybody know how a real grandfather clock works? What makes it go? You have to wind the works, and then what makes it? But what makes it? You wind it, and then what makes it go? You, you, you know, you have a grandfather clock. Down the bottom, you have a pendulum, and it's got weights. It's got a pendulum, or it's got weights. Now, what would happen to a grandfather clock if you took the weight off, or took the pendulum weight off? What? Incorrect time. It wouldn't work. I propose to you that the same thing would happen to you if you didn't have trials or temptations. Trials and temptations are the weight of a grandfather clock upon you to make you, quote, unquote, work. Now, third, the third reason is found in verse 4, and that is the idea of maturity or perfection. Let let patience have her perfect work, that she may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Not perfect as in sinless, but perfect as in mature. The Greek word teleos, uh, one of the best examples of a teleos is an oak tree is a teleos of an acorn. You know, you have a little acorn, and what does it look like when it's mature? It looks like a tree. It looks like an oak tree. Very good. So that's the idea there. Now, how do we know that that word teleos means complete and mature, and it doesn't mean sinless? I propose to you, you can look at Hebrews 5, verses 8 through 9, and answer that question. And this is talking about Jesus Christ. Though he were a son... Yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to all that obey him. Now, was Jesus Christ sinful and then was made sinless? No, but he was made perfect in terms of complete. He was made complete by what he suffered. He was brought. Uh, I, I don't. I don't. I, I think. I think the best way we understand that is that he was fulfilled, brought to fulfilled to completion by what he suffered. Now, the last reason is also found in verse 4. Facing trials and temptation leads to completeness. We might use the term well-rounded here. The King James uses a couple of words, entire, entire, or wanting nothing. Wanting nothing. Uh, That idea of wanting nothing appears in a bunch of ways in the Bible. Uh, it is in uh, the idea of wanting nothing is found in 2 Timothy three sixteen to 17. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect. There it is. Thoroughly furnished unto all good work. Uh, the idea of being completely armored. Ephesians 6.11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The whole armor is talking about completeness. 
the idea of being effective and fruitful for Christ, uh, 2 Peter 1, 5-8. And besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you... They make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The idea of being complete, mature. And then finally, there's the idea of being holy and righteous. Hebrews 12, verses 10 through 11 say this, For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised. Hey, we saw that we've heard that word a couple of times today. They which are exercised thereby. Now, I just want to, uh, you have some blanks there at the bottom that I want to fill in. Uh, that's really the summary. But uh, once again, I know I've run long, but if we want to have some interaction, uh, if anything has come to your mind, if any of you wants to pray, if any of you has a song you want to, to sing, we, we'll, we, we can take the time to do that. Uh, but the, down in the summary, temptations or trials, whichever you'd like to fill in there, they can fill in both, temptations and trials lead to joy. That joy leads to patience. That patience leads to maturity, and the maturity leads to completeness. To jump from the beginning to the end, without trials and temptations, you will never be complete. Now, that's James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, or 1 through 4. And uh, I've talked a lot, and I hope some of you all got a chance to, to interject your thoughts, but I don't want to close without giving other people the opportunity to, to have a say or to ask a question. So so this is a good chance. Have at it. Or perhaps somebody would like to pray. Perhaps somebody would like us to pray for Very good, and uh, I think we, we we could all be reminded that the primary purpose of the book of First Peter was written to people that were facing persecution. All right, and and you tell me tell me what you see, but I what I, I'll tell you what I see. I see the fact that individual trials and temptations will come to an end, but there's also a point where all trials and temptations will come to an end. Yeah, and then I'm also reminded uh, as you talked about First Peter. One there uh, about, and and you'll be able to tell me where it is. But our light and momentary afflictions, right? <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. You got closer than I did, but 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 I, but I do know that they're called light and momentary. And do they seem light and momentary? Mm-hmm. Yeah. In fact, that is the most common word picture that's used about trials in the Bible. Is the idea of being tested by fire. Uh, I think 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is one of the classic passages on that about how our works will be tried to see if they're wood, hay, stubble, or silver, gold, and precious, you know, precious stones. That's, 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 I think that probably is the most common word picture regarding the, the use of trials in the Bible is the picture of the testing of metal and the, not only the testing of it, but also the purifying of it. That, I think that's the point you're trying to make. Oh, very good. Second Corinthians four seventeen. I'm just saying that because I'm being recorded here, so it's getting getting on the tape. <laughs>